You can't handle the truth. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> You're gonna need a bigger boat. Get away from her, you bitch! The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. To infinity and beyond! Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Hi, and welcome to the first annual Samuel and Manuel movie podcast Christmas special. Holy shit, that was a mouthful. My name is Sam Reimer. And I'm Manny Manuel. Well, this is an exciting one, Manny. We've uh, been teasing this one for a little bit. We won't quite uh, quite reveal what movie we're doing today, but suffice it to say, uh, it is a good one. Yeah, it certainly is. But before we reveal what we have selected for our Christmas edition... I want to talk about uh, our social media. So for those of you out there that want to contact Sam or I, you can contact us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. Please follow us on there. You can send us messages. You can see what we've been watching and all that kind of stuff. We'd love to hear from you. Speaking of that, using the uh, uh, Instagram and Twitter, you can contact us for our mailbag episode, which we've kind of pushed back because we've had um, – Original plan was to do it uh, and release it over the Christmas holidays, but uh, some scheduling conflicts came up for Sam and I, and we just aren't going to be able to do it. But that pushes it back, so we will be accepting more questions for our mailbag episode, which we'll be doing most likely in late January. Um, So if you have any questions for us, please submit them uh, through uh, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Also, we're going to do our first ever fan selection. You guys get to pick the movie that Sam and I are going to review and discuss. So please pick a movie for us. We will watch it, review it, post up the episode for you, and you guys can get a good chuckle over it. And again, you can contact us through our social media, which I mentioned before is Sam underscore Manny underscore movie on Instagram and Twitter. That's everything. That's everything. That's all. <laughs> Sorry, we got we got a lot of social media now. We've made the big time. We certainly have. <laughs> What'd you say? We're averaging eighteen listeners an episode now. Yeah, we're averaging eighteen downloads an episode. All right, we are moving up in the world. The last two slowed down a little bit. Yeah, but... the last two were uh, not that great, but uh, it's still early. It is the Christmas time, so a lot of people don't have the free time to listen to it. So... As I definitely do not. So, Manny, we've uh, let the people wonder long enough. I understand uh, you want to do something a little special to introduce. Yeah, to reveal our Christmas episode. I've got a little poem. I do not take credit for this poem. I, uh, I found, where did I find it? Hold on. I think I have the, uh, is it right here? Nope. Okay. I can't, uh, I can't credit whoever wrote this because I, it looks like I deleted the link. So, whoever don't, wrote. Please don't do us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't sue us, but here's a, here's a poem revealing the movie we are going to be reviewing for our first ever Christmas episode. "'Twas the night before Christmas at Nakatomi Plaza. The office party was festive, but soon interrupted by drama. Hans Gruber and his men had forced their way in and taken everyone hostage, trapping them within. But how could they know? There was a cop up above. John McClane had arrived to win back his wife's love. He would take them all out, 
winning everyone's praise, welcoming Christmas Day and his favorite catchphrase, Yippee-ki-yay. It's Die Hard! It's Die Hard! <laughs> Alright, so, um, if you listen closely, you can hear the sound of multiple people groaning and turning off the podcast. <laughs> so, Manny, uh, before we piss too many people off, uh, I, I guess we, we just hop right into the discussion. Lots of Lots of people will think that Die Hard just isn't a Christmas movie, flat out. Um, why don't you inform these people just briefly uh, why they're wrong? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think there's actually arguments to be made for both sides, whether this is a Christmas movie or whether it isn't. I guess it all boils down to how do you, what are your criteria for what a Christmas movie is. In all honesty... I don't really feel that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I think Christmas is an important part of the Die Hard film, um, but it's, in my opinion, it's not a Christmas movie. Um, but I'm counting it because it gives me a chance to talk about it sooner than I originally planned. Um, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see where the anger comes from, and it's actually a heated debate. If you look up anything on yes on the internet, or even bring it up to one of your movie buff friends, uh, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I've brought it up to a couple of my friends, and I've definitely gotten some pushback. I think the most convincing argument to the contrary that I've heard has just been that you can watch Die Hard any time of year. Yeah. It, it still works if you watch it in July. Whereas if you watch The Grinch in July, or if you watch you know, other other Christmas movies Christmas uh, vacation. all year round... Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation. It just loses the charm. It doesn't doesn't feel like a Christmas movie. So I can definitely be sympathetic to that. Mm-hmm. I think there are exceptions to that rule. Um, but, I mean, if I can play devil's advocate, I think the main criteria for me for a Christmas movie is that you're able to watch it on Christmas with your family, have a good time, and get into the Christmas spirit. And that very much is the case with Die Hard. Yes, it, it still works all year round, and there are elements that really have nothing to do with Christmas, but I still very much enjoy it as a Christmas movie. Um, not that I would argue it really is, but fuck it. Watch it whenever you want. I don't care. Yeah, watch I it, agree. Watch it on Christmas Eve or watch it on fucking Canada Day. I don't care. It's a good movie. Agreed 100%. Uh, I love all the points you made. Um, it is a very spirited and heated debate. Uh, on whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. There are some really great articles out there that are humorous and funny, and people get really upset over all this. Um, but I, I'm we're, we're counting it as a Christmas movie this year because you and I both wanted to talk about it. When we talked about doing a Christmas movie, but you and I both said Die Hard right away. It was fucking <laughs> probably one of the highlights of our off-air talks. <laughs> um, also, if, if you don't like it, just fuck you. It's our show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We can drop from eighteen to seventeen listeners. That's all good. We make the decisions around here. That's right, and that's why we ha- have only eighteen listeners, um, because we make the wrong decisions. Um, exactly. They did. Um, there was a poll conducted. Uh, where is it? I can't. Oh, the Hollywood Reporter. The Hollywood Reporter did a, a poll of twenty-two hundred U.S. adults, and uh, it was a resounding twenty-five percent said yes. It is a Christmas movie. Um, a minuscule 62% said it. No, it wasn't. And then an overwhelming majority of 13% don't know. 
You know, I will also say there are movies that remind me of Christmas. Like, I had a tradition in my family, as I'm sure many families do, where you watch a movie every Christmas. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't even necessarily a Christmas movie. Like, we, I, some of the movies that remind me of Christmas, um, Moneyball, I watched on Christmas with my family. District 9, I watched on Christmas with my family. Um, there's got to be a ton of others, but those are the first two that come to mind anyway. Just non-Christmas movies that really... I like watching around the holidays because it reminds me of when I was a kid and when these movies first came out. Um, and I don't know. I, I just think that if you enjoy watching a movie and that you enjoy it at Christmas time and having a rum and eggnog around a fire, then nobody can tell you that, uh, that you're wrong. And nobody can tell you that Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie, as I'm sure many people will try to do. Yes, I agree. And like we said, we make the rules. We've decided that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. So we are now going to dive in to Dive uh, Hard. Oh, I will also say for our purposes, this movie makes sense that it's a Christmas. It makes sense for us to consider it a Christmas movie because what else, what other movie could we really do that's like, if this isn't, I'm trying to think of a way to put this. If, it, if you say that it is a Christmas movie, I think it's the best ever. If you, if you consider that it is a Christmas movie, if you concede that point then i think it is the best christmas movie ever i will say that i'll go on record as saying that i like that i like that what do you, do you agree disagree i if if this is considered a christmas movie then this would be my all-time favorite christmas movie yeah 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 definitely um i have a little uh a little ti- uh trivia tidbit that i saved for you about this though are you ready okay all right all right um both the uh, first and second Die Hard movies are actually considered to be Christmas films by many of the film's fans. But Bruce Willis himself claimed otherwise on his roast on Comedy Central. Yeah, so John I, I, McClane himself says this is not a Christmas movie. I, I was actually looking at that earlier. I believe one of the exact quotes was, Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie, it's a goddamn Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is great. Um, all right. Are we ready to dive in to this yeah. fucking fantastic film? This fucking fantastic Christmas film, yes. All right. So uh, Die Hard, uh, it's uh, directed by John McTiernan. Uh, it's written by uh, Jeb Stewart, who based it off the Roderick Thorpe's book. has a 72 meta score, which in my opinion is uh, 28 points lower than what it needs to be. <laughs> uh, had a budget of $28 million, uh, grossed $140 million. It actually got four Oscar nominations for Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects. Uh, the plot of the movie, John McClane, officer of the New York Police Department, tries to save his wife Holly Gennaro and several others that were taken hostage by German terrorist Hans Gruber during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. Die hard. <laughs> so, um, I guess that we'll just sort of give our general overview before going into spoilers, but before we even do that, like, obviously go watch this movie. Obviously, if you haven't seen this movie before in your life, or even if you had, go watch Die Hard. It's a really good movie. It's a classic. It's one that I've seen many times before. I know it's one that Manny has seen many times before. And it is so much better and smarter and slicker in every way than just about every other movie that came after it that tried to copy it. It, it 
will occasionally come off like a cliche 80s action movie because it is the 80s action movie. It is so much better than every other movie that came out this year, I'm sure. I haven't actually looked at that. I hope Manny is doing exactly that right now. Sorry, what was that? No, I was just saying that I can't think of a movie off the top of my head that was better than this or more important than this one uh, the year that it came out. Oh, the year it came out? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know Uh, if that's a little bit too much homework, but... Give me one second. uh, Mm, I don't know. Um, What I was actually looking at was uh, trying to find a couple lists of the best action movies of all time. Right. Um, Because this is usually uh, number one. And what I thought was generally considered number two is actually number seven on this list, which is by uh, Ranker. Vote on everything. Oh, I guess. All right. Um, (laughs) But I can't really argue some of the other ones on this list. So... Let's. Uh, I'm gonna count down the top ten uh, on this uh, on this place called Ranker. Okay. Um, so number ten is Saving Private Ryan. This is for action movies. Action movies, yeah. Okay. Uh, number four. Uh, sorry, number nine is Predator. Okay. Have you? Uh, you've seen both of those, obviously. I've seen both of those. Okay. Yes. Number eight, Lethal Weapon. I've not seen. I didn't think you have, and that's. I'll tell you right now. You're going to be fucking watching it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Number seven is Aliens. Which I've obviously seen yes. because Samuel and Manuel did a very in-depth uh, deep dive on the movie Aliens. Yes. Number six is The Dark Knight. Okay, agreed. Number five, I never really consider this an action movie. This is more sci-fi for me, but I can't argue its placement here. The Matrix. Yeah, uh, I, I guess it would be an action movie. Honestly, it's more of an action movie than uh, than Saving Private Ryan is. I think. I mean, Saving Private Ryan I've always considered a war film, which I guess you can consider a subgenre of action. But I, I it, agree. I never thought of Saving Private Ryan as an action movie. It's a very personal uh, drama with really riveting action scenes in it. But uh, that might be getting too much into semantics. Yeah. Number four is The Terminator. Yep. Okay. Number three is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Which you and I were just discussing before we went on air, actually. Yes. Number two is Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Okay. And then number one is Die Hard. Wow, I've seen almost all of those movies except Lethal Weapon. Yes. I'm so proud of myself. Again, you will be watching. Um. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I'd have to really kind of do a deep dive into the films of 1988 um, to see if anything else that year um, came out. Um, I'm, uh, I'm trying to find here. Uh, I got a list of movies from 1988. Holy uh, shit! That's a, I can already see right now. It's a great fucking year for film. Who, who framed Roger Rabbit? Yep. Rain Man. Beetlejuice. Uh, Big. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a that's a really good movie. Well, here's a good one. To take a look. Oops. Shit. Midnight Run. Uh, mm. Oh, shit. Cocktail. <laughs> Fucking love that movie. Uh, let's see. Nightmare uh, on Elm Street 4. Is that one that you've seen? Uh, yeah, definitely have. You've uh, seen all the Nightmare on Elm Streets, right? Yeah. Gorillas in the Mist. Not bad. Uh, let's see here. Action Jackson. Fucking great movie. Bloodsport. Jesus. 
Stand and Deliver, another good movie. But again, these are no nowhere near um, what uh, what Die Hard is. Uh, let's see here, uh, Colors. I remember that movie. It's kind of the first movie that really kind of tackled uh, gang violence. Um, obviously, this is before your time, but not that it's changed much. But I, this is when gang violence in uh, Los Angeles was really at a kind of like an all-time high. And Colors was uh, one of the movies that really uh, kind of first tackled it. It's uh, Sean Penn and Robert Duvall. Uh, let's see here. Let's see. Mm, nope. Don't see anything that uh... – oh, Willow. I always love Willow. Again, like I said, big. Big was good. There's Bull Durham, The Great Outdoors, so fun. Coming to America, massive hit with uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, Die Hard. Wow, I'm really not. I'm not even seeing anything that uh, really. Uh, oh, The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh, Young Guns. Oh, I love me some Young Guns. Yeah, the only. I mean, I'm looking at the Best Picture nominees for that year. And you know what won Best Picture that year, I'm, I'm sure? 88? 88, 61st. Mm, oh, it's going to bug me. It's going to bug me. I should know. It's not The Accused. Um, shit. Uh, mm, fuck, tell me. Rayman. Oh, god damn it. I, see, I fucking knew that. <laughs> uh, then yeah. looking again, uh, Alien Nation. That's actually a, a really good movie. Like I said, The Accused. Um, then there was... Let's see. I, oh, they Live. Oh, They Live. Fucking love that movie. One of my... Again, I probably said on this podcast, but it has one of my all-time favorite lines in film history. Which I guess we'll... Uh, maybe we'll save that. Uh, one of your favorite lines. Because I think uh, we might have a mailbag question. Oh, that's about. true. That's... Oh, yeah. shit. That's right. Oh, <laughs> Uh, mm, uh, Scrooged. I love that movie. Uh, let's see. Mississippi Burning is really good. Oh, shit. Twins. Have you seen Twins? No. Do you know the premise of Twins? I don't know the premise of Twins. <laughs> Tw- I can't believe we're talking about this when we're supposed to be talking about Die Hard. We've been on nothing uh, but tangents today. Twins <laughs> Twins is this movie about uh, who... To a set of twins that were separated at birth and grew up in different areas, and they get back together when they're adults. Do you want to know who the twins were? Who are the twins? <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. Oh, I have heard of this movie. I have heard of this movie. God. The uh, 80s were just fucked up. Everyone was on oh, coke. Yeah. All the uh, screenwriters in the 80s were on coke. Yeah, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, great movie. Rain Man, obviously a great movie. Beaches, great movie. Working Girl, great movie. All right, that's everything. Yeah, so, yeah, kind of look at... Every, that's every single movie that came out in 1988 right there. Yeah. Uh, gr- a great year, though. Looking at that year, fuck, that's a good year for movies. Um, but, yeah, I would I would tend to agree. Uh, Die Hard, definitely the most important film to come out that year. Yeah, no question. I think if you ask, if you gave anyone... Maybe a condensed version of that list. Uh, they would easily say Die Hard is the most influential movie to come out. And it's funny, you can even see elements of modern action uh, modern action directors. In particular, I'm going to get a lot of shit for saying this probably, but you can even see elements of like Michael Bay movies in there. Like Way better, obviously. But just certain elements of how things are shot, or the, the story structure, or uh, 
like one of the similarities I noticed in uh, Die Hard one and two that is kind of similar to Michael Bay movies is like how all the the police and the military and like, anyone who wears a uniform is like super ultra glorified, and then anybody who's a, like a suit wearing bureaucrat is just a fucking Weasley pansy ass bitch. <laughs> and like a lot of other action directors like clearly have taken uh, inspiration from that or maybe that's just a common trope that i'm misattributing to certain people but i i did like that between die hard one and two yeah when it comes to that like is there seriously is there any guy that signifies or personifies that skeezy suit wearing guy better than harry ellis played by oh, hart yeah. bachner like i fucking love ellis I love Ellis. And, I fucking hate Ellis, but I love Ellis. Yes. That scene um, when he goes uh, – again, I'm gonna, we're going to be loaded with trivia in the, and we'll get there. But when he goes to Hans Gruber, he goes, Hans, Bubby. Oh, fuck. And if you look, they, they have the take where Hans Gruber looks at him quizzically after he says that. It's because that line wasn't scripted. <laughs> and so Rickman's like, what the fuck? <laughs> and so it's an honest reaction. I fucking I like I love little things like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I seriously just tip my cap to Hart Bachner because Ellis has what maybe four or five scenes, but he's like the highlight of every which one he's in. Yeah, I, I love the introduction to Ellis. It seems like such a uh, such an inconsequential scene and for a character who at the time you think might be pretty inconsequential. But the, his initial meeting with John McClane, where McClane just looks at him and just goes, you missed a little. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the cocaine. Yeah, fucking brilliant. Again, everybody was on cocaine in the 80s. What a time. Yes, everyone was. <laughs> I was terrified of cocaine as a kid. Yeah. Because of Lethal Weapon. Which, again, I have not seen. Yeah, which you will. <laughs> I assure you. I just found out uh, off air for all of those all of you listening out there we I barely have talked about Die Hard but uh, I learned a lot of movies that our good friend here has not yet seen so <laughs> there's going to be a lot of really great movies coming down the pipe That's the whole point of this podcast this whole podcast was just a, an elaborate ruse for you to get me to watch the movies you want me to watch We should have just named the name of this podcast was the edu- the film education of Sam Reimer yeah, Sam Reimer watches really fucking old movies with best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, before I guess before we dive in, there's a couple things I I wanted to go over. Um, as I always love to find out, I love to find out uh, people that were offered this role or turned down this role or stuff like that. Um, the first person to turn down the role of John McClane was Nick Nolte. Okay. Again, with this entire list, I'm probably going to have the same note on each of these people, which is they probably would have been good, but they wouldn't have been Bruce Willis. Yes. Um, a couple people were considered for this role. These are two people that were considered for this role, but weren't they weren't offered, but they were considered it. Uh, was John Travolta and Michael Madsen. Yeah, dodged a bullet there. Definitely dodged a bullet there. Michael Madsen, I think, would have been okay, but John Travolta would have been a travesty. Yeah, especially pre-Pulp Fiction, John Travolta. Yes, totally. Uh, Harrison Ford was offered the role. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, Harrison Ford is just about the only other person on the planet who probably could have pulled this out. Same with Mel Gibson. Yeah. Uh, yes, pre-racial tirade, Mel Gibson. Yes. <laughs> Those uh, were the days. Speaking of which, holy... Okay, here we go. We should just name this the fucking tangent episode. I was just... Uh, as I, I, th- I think I told you, we might have mentioned before last week, I can't remember, but it was the re-release of Schindler's List. Mel Gibson was attached to play Oscar Schindler. Not even lying. That's a big yikes. Not is... even lying. That sounds like somebody... All I want is to see the Mel Gibson version of Schindler's List. That's all I want in my yeah, life. It he wouldn't have long. saved any of them. <laughs> You would have been like, well, you know. <laughs> oh my god, I, I don't even want to go and make jokes on this part because we'll get in some trouble. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Most, that would have been the most hilarious casting of all time. Uh, uh, the last two people that were offered this role and turned it down: uh, Al Pacino, okay, and Robert De Niro was the last person to turn it down before Bruce Willis got the job. They, those guys would have been weird, though. Like they don't have. The same sort of persona. Like, they obviously have the badass, like, tough guy persona, but at the time, they were really doing the whole gangster thing really well. They they weren't... Those guys were never on the right side of the law in their movies. Yeah, well... So, I think, I think it would have been... It wouldn't necessarily have been bad, but it would have been out of character. Well, what would have happened is, because Bruce Willis was hired... Um... I'm not sure if you know this, but Bruce Willis was actually uh, a TV star at the time. He was on this uh, show called Moonlighting um, with Sybil Shepard. It was a huge hit um, where he's nothing like this character. Um, And so this is kind of what catapulted him into superstardom. But because he was filming both this movie and Moonlighting at the same time, so he would film Moonlighting during the day and then he would come do Die Hard at night – because he wasn't available as much, the other characters got more screen time. So that actually increased um, the screen time for characters like Sergeant Al Powell, Argyle, and the Richard Thornburg, uh, Richard Thornburg uh, role as well, um, played by William Atherton. So if, if it hadn't been Bruce Willis, some of these little side characters that we love so much that add so much flavor probably wouldn't have gotten that screen time. And it would have been a completely different movie. Yeah, one of the best things about Die Hard is that it feels like such a real, fully fleshed-out world. All, every single character that has screen time in this movie really uh, is just super well fleshed out. We already talked about Ellis. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about uh, guys like Hans Gruber. Um, and, I mean, even even someone as inconsequential as Argyle has great moments. Um just every single side character in this movie is really well flushed out. So honestly, that was probably sort of a happy accident that uh, Bruce Willis was so unavailable during shooting. Yeah, and was um, one of the other th- one of the other things I loved about this movie um, is um, Bonnie Bedelia, who plays uh, Holly Gennaro. This is gonna sound soup. I don't know, maybe super sexist or really fucking shallow. But one of the things I and it's this is not it's going to come across as kind of an insult to Bonnie Bedelia. But one of the things I loved about her was she was so normal looking. She wasn't some super smoking hot movie star wife that all these guys have in their action movies. Like the girlfriend is always like movie star gorgeous, and Bonnie Bedelia is she's just an, she's attractive, but she's not 
again, I'm, I'm sorry to say she's not a head turner, but the fact that she's a normal woman, I think adds to this movie for me. Though, like she completely feels like a real person, which for the eighties is remarkably high praise. Yes. That, uh, the wife character in this movie actually has some depth to her. Um, I love some of her little comments. I love the relationship between her and Bruce Willis, how at the beginning of this movie, they're really on the outs with one another. Like we see them fight and we see Bruce Willis act childish and we see, um, I've already forgotten her character's name. Holly. Uh, um, yeah. Holly. Thank you. We see, uh, John and Holly really duke it out. And Holly is a formidable person. She's a career woman. And the whole, problem all of the problems between her and her husband have just come from the fact that she's not going to sacrifice her career for for her husband she's not just going to stay in new york she's going to move to la and pursue this opportunity and do what's best for her oh. and she's a really empowered really depth or, uh, really in-depth rather character and she uh for the 80s that's more than you can ask for in an yeah movie. like she's Exactly what she said. Like she's not going to just stay in New York because that's where her husband's job is. She had an opportunity to come out west and propel herself uh, up the corporate ladder, and by all accounts, she's done so magnificently. And you know, uh, Takagi, uh, the the I guess CEO of of the company here in, in L.A. Uh, of Yakutomi Plaza. Uh, is obviously uh, enthralled with the work that she's done and she's worked her way up like i think she's pro- it seems that she's like second in command to takagi here um, well well there is that one part in the movie where rickman said uh who who put you in charge and she said you did when you killed my boss yeah so she, she's essentially running the the nakatomi corporation uh, yeah. about 20 30 minutes into this movie yeah and so it's it's uh it's 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 just a, a for as shitty as it is to say it, it was very progressive for its time for this for for to be such a strong independent woman she's not relying on Bruce Willis and i'm sure uh, probably going to piss some feminists off yes she gets saved by a man in this movie but so do all the other guys that were in there right basically everyone who's not john McClane is uh, is completely a passenger in this movie yes. at least from the non-terrorist side yeah um, but I I liked Bonnie Bedelia in this movie. She she doesn't she's not scared. I don't think she. I think the only time she screams is at the end when uh, Gruber pull, almost pulls her out the window. But she's not. Yeah, I'd a, scream too. Sorry. I, I'd scream too. Yeah, but she's not. She's not t- cowering in fear. She stands up to Hans Gruber. Um, you know when Takagi is is killed, she has to step up to the plate, and she's has no literally no fear going and asking him you know for the couch for the pregnant secretary and to tell him that they need to start going to the washroom or it's going to be messy um i really like this character a lot um and i i think it's a it's a it was a definitely a nice change of pace and it just again like you said it just it's a fleshed out world and it's 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 really paid off by the by the characters by the side characters um, do you want to just continue going through the cast while we're here? <laughs> Fuck, might as well, right? Um, I mean... We're not going to dive too much into Hans Gruber because we have a whole episode uh, where we talked about our favorite movie villains, uh, and I uh, waxed poetic about Gruber for a very long time um, <laughs> because he was number one on my list. 
I forget where he ranked on my list. Or I think he was five. I think he was five, yeah, because I remember it was between him and some other people. I couldn't remember, but I thought I put him at five. Um, he's, he's great, but we'll, we'll get there. Yes, well, you know, it's, we're a couple things that I want to touch on with Hans Gruber. Uh, I, I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to get too much into him, but one person um, that turned down the role was Sam Neill. He played uh, he played the paleontologist in the first Jurassic Park. Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, Alan Rickman um, on the first day of shooting, his first day of shooting um, was the scene uh, where him and John McClane actually meet for the first time, uh, and he jumped off a he just jumped off like a three foot ledge, uh, and he damaged the cartilage in his knee. Uh, so he's told by his doctor to not put any weight on that leg. And he had to use crutches for a week. So for the rest of the scene where where Hans is standing and talking to John McClane, Rickman is actually standing on one leg with a leg brace under the other one. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely would ruin the tension of the scene. Good on those actors for playing it professional. Um, yeah. Um, um, this was obviously, as we mentioned before in the villain episode, this is Alan Rickman's uh, film debut. Um, and could you honestly ask for a better intro to this amazing actor uh, named Alan Rickman. The Hans Gruber role is just pure bliss. There's so many things that he does. There's so many things that he says. He's just a, an amazing character, and it's an amazing performance um, by Alan Rickman. Yeah, was he uh, – he was just a stage actor, uh, right? Or... Yeah, just. He was just a stage actor. Yeah. You know what I mean. <laughs> We're a film podcast here, man. God damn it. I know. Huh, I I guess there would probably be Broadway and play podcasts. I wonder what they would be like. Interesting. Um, look that up. I mean, obviously, we won't mention those here because we need people to continue believing we're the only podcast in existence. So yes, yes. So, uh, that being said, there's only 18 people in the world that listen to podcasts. So 18.2. Oh, the let's let's stick with his crew for now. Um, Carl, played by Alexander Gudnov. Uh, I love the look of that character. Um, I love. I don't know why, but it's so dumb. But I like I love, I love how, <laughs> I love how light his hair is. Not in the color, but in the weight. Because every time it moves, it like flows out his back, and it really accentuates his movement. Um, I don't know if Alexander. Well, I could definitely look it up. I don't know if Alexander Gudnov's been in anything else I've seen. Uh, he, he died in 1995 from the looks of it. God so, damn, uh, poor guy. He's uh he's actually Russian, not German. Uh, yeah, they talk about that that there's a, a a huge lack of Germans actually in this German crew. I think only two of the actual people were German. Yeah, is uh, I guess Alan Rickman probably knows some German because it sounds like he speaks a lot in this movie. Yes, he does. Yeah, with a um, pretty deep accent. The uh, the rest of the crew. I gotta, I gotta see if I can find his name. Well, there's um, the character's name is Uli. He's played by Al Young. He's the the Asian of the group. Right. Um, speaking of which, uh, for 1988, this is a very diverse cast. This terrorist yeah. group uh, has Asians. It has African Americans. It has Europeans. It has white people. 
I guess it's just missing just missing some Latinos. <laughs> yeah, which I guess we get in Die Hard too. Yes, so true. Oh, <laughs> right. I guess this uh, this this bad guy crew is actually missing some women as well, uh, and some and some gay guys. But uh, I think that I think that's all the minority groups. Uh, I guess we need a transsexual as well. Uh, what else are we missing? Maybe not as diverse as I hoped. <laughs> One step at a time. It's still only 1988 at this point. That's true. And I guess the the folk fry ter- terrorist organization uh, aren't quite as pro- progressive as the Nakatomi Corporation. Very true. At least in terms of gender. Um, Theo, uh, that's the uh, the African American in the group. Uh, I again, <laughs> speaking of progression, like it's the the African American is the super smart guy, computer nerd. Like if you although they are still very secondary quippy characters all yes. three of the black guys in this movie all of them are there for comic relief in this movie totally oh if if you remember there's that one scene uh why i wanted to talk about ali young um who plays uli there's that scene where he's getting ready to have a shootout with the cops as they storm the building and he grabs the crunch in mars bar underneath the yeah, yeah. that wasn't planned he did that to just kind of he he said uh, he said the the scene needed a little comic relief, so I thought it'd be kind of funny to do it, and so they kept it in the movie. That's pretty awesome, actually, because that is a nice little moment, and it's I, I remember actually noting it when it was on screen. Like you're ro- you're stealing hundreds of millions of dollars, and he looks over his shoulder. I know <laughs> it's, it's like so fun. It's a tiny little thing and it actually it makes me laugh it really does it i know i know exactly what you mean because i love that he looks around to make sure nobody else is seeing that he's stealing a chocolate bar it's again like i've said numerous times it's the little touches like that that make the movie even better um there is a um one of the bad guys um his character's name is james but i i i can't remember if they ever actually call him that or they must have at some point but he's a minor character he um his real name is wilhelm wilhelm von homburg um he actually plays oh god damn it he plays the villain in ghostbusters too oh and when i first saw it it took me forever to realize that it's the same guy uh vigo 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 the uh, the uh, the carpathian and uh uh, that's what I loved. Um, who? I think that's it for the crew that really stood out to me. Um, I love um, James Shigata who played Takagi. I love how he carries himself and the, I guess for lack of a better word, the uh, the regality of the character. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. He has this presence that like, everything's under control even when he starts to panic a little bit when he's being interrogated uh he still seems very much in control uh maybe that's the wrong way of putting it he seems in control of his own emotions i guess and yes. he seems composed i guess would be the best way to put it um i don't know it i'm sure you probably noticed it but like i like we've said i've watched this movie honestly i'd have to say easily 25 30 times I'm not quite that uh, that many. I'd say I've probably seen this movie six, seven times. Yeah, I've watched this movie a lot. And yeah. one thing that always gets me is the the murdering, the uh, Takagi's murder scene. I don't know if you notice because they, they, they only make two references to it in that scene. But um, Carl and Theo have a bet on whether or not Takagi's going to give it up. I don't know if you've seen that. 
I don't know. I don't know if I noticed it. Okay, so it's it's fucking now when <laughs> now the next time you watch it, you'll you'll notice it because if you remember, there's there's kind of like there's about five or six different shots in that film uh, in that scene, but they always. They cut to Hans Gruber, they cut to, to Kagi, and then they'll sometimes cut to Carl and Theo sitting there together because Theo's sitting at that computer, right? Because he wants the password to get in. Yeah. And um, they, I wish I could remember the exact line. I should have pulled up the quote. But he first says that he's not going to give it, and he, uh, he goes, what? I, I think Carl's like, he's like, I told you, and Theo goes, it's not over yet. And then when he shoots him, you can see that Carl hands Theo like five bucks. <laughs> That's an awesome touch. I, oh, yeah, I honestly have not noticed that. Oh, dude, I it actually it took me a long time to to see it at first. I was like, why does he give him money? But then when you start paying attention to them in the scene instead of that great tension between Gruber and Takagi, you realize how fucking dark and humorous those two are in that in that scene. Yeah, I. Uh... Exactly what you said. I haven't noticed because the the main conflict in the scene is so incredibly powerful. Every time that you watch it, uh, yeah, I've yet to I've yet to even notice that. So next time I watch it, I'm definitely gonna oh, definitely gonna take a you look. You definitely maybe have to take a look. Maybe I'll watch it over the holidays with my family again. Oh, you sh- you totally do. And the best part is is um I can't. I think it's it's either after it's either after uh, he Gruber kills Takagi. Or it's right when he says uh, it's not over yet. Gruber actually gives them a stern look, like <laughs> fucking, like this is not what we're here for. It's it's awesome. I mean, the teacher just saw you passing notes or something. Yes, like pay attention, boys. Like this is this is important. <laughs> um, rest of the cast, um, we of course obviously have uh, Reginald Vell Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell. Um, who to this day still says that fans come up and give him Twinkies all the time, um, which I, I love. And he says it doesn't bother him. He thinks it's great. Um, a very uh, a, a side note uh, on that, there's three characters uh, in this movie with the last name Johnson. Um, there's the two FBI agents and there's somebody else. Uh, they did that on purpose because of Reginald Vell Johnson. It's a little inside joke they had apparently. Um, and then we have William Atherton who plays Richard Thornburg. That's the TV personality. Um, coupled with Paul Gleason, who is Deputy Chile- uh, Police Chief uh, uh, Chief Dwayne T. Robinson. Uh, Paul Gleason and William Atherton are very popular uh, movie villains. Um, yeah, from what I understand, Paul Gleason is every stern father in every 80s movie. Yes, and he's the uh, the principal in uh breakfast club breakfast club yeah yeah you mess with the bull you get the horns which honestly we we won't get into this because we've been going on so many tangents yeah kind of an overrated movie in my opinion but... holy fuck balls yeah <laughs> i'm just gonna let that slide by i'm gonna let okay. that one slide by i'm gonna That's move fine. on we can discuss it later yeah we certainly can uh, hopefully, when uh, you're keep, in... keeping in mind, keeping in mind that it is 11:22 p.m. here in Calgary. Ooh, wow! Because was... if we dis- if we discuss it right after we get off air, then uh, we're gonna be a while. I'm gonna have to put on some coffee. That's true. That's true. Uh, and then William Atherton, of course, uh, he plays uh, one of the antagonists in, in one of my favorite films, uh, Ghostbusters. Um, 
that's I guess most of the cast. Um, yeah, am I really missing anybody that? don't really think I am. No, not really. No, I think you basically got it covered. We basically did everyone except for uh, the two big boys. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, what do I want to do? All right, we're still looking good. Um, I guess we can kind of dive in, hey? Yeah, I'm all ready to go. We've right. said our piece, non-spoilers. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> we said a lot. Um, one last thing, actually, before we get on, uh, the, uh, nah, fuck it, I don't care about that, it's not fucking that important. Let's move on. Um, let's dive into the movie. On Christmas Eve, uh, New York Police Department, uh, Detective John McClane arrives in Los Angeles, intending to reconcile with his estranged wife, Holly, at the Christmas party of her employer, employer, the Nakatomi Corporation. McClane is driven to the party by Argyle, an airport limousine driver. While McLean changes clothes, the party is disrupted by the arrival of a German terrorist, Hans Gruber, and his heavily armed team. Carl, Tony, Franco, Theo, Alexander, Marco, Christoph, Eddie, Uli, Heinrich, Fritz, and James. The group seizes the tower and secures those inside as hostages, except for McLean, who slips away, and Argyle, who gets trapped in the garage. The opening scene has McLean on a plane, and he is talking to his what would you go neighbor hmm. yeah sure. I, I would, your, your seat talking neighbor? he's talking to the guy next to him <clears throat> the guy next to him says the best way to get through airport travel is to make fists with your feet i to this day do this <laughs> not even during planes but just it just i if i do it it actually makes it it makes me feel relaxed as I'm, I'm actually doing it as we speak. Uh, I'm on hardwood right now. Every time, oh, so am I. But every time, he to do it on the carpet. Yeah, he does it on the carpet. Every time I'm like on carpet or anything like that, and I'm barefoot, I always do it, and I do it all the time. Um, whenever I'm feeling, I don't know, stressed or anything like that, I'm like, I'm like, oh, it feels so good. I'm removing my socks right now. <laughs> Obviously, the, the listeners won't be able to see this, but Manny, you can. They are, uh, they're chest-themed. Oh, they are chest-themed! <laughs> <laughs> You're such a nerd! I know. I know. I also have Bill Murray socks. Have I told you that before? Yes. Yeah. Yes, you have. Yeah, I don't feel it. I don't know. All good. All good. <laughs> All uh, that work to take off these socks. We're also introduced to Argyle. That's actually one uh, character we actually didn't talk about. Um, I love their little awkward encounter at the airport because it's both of their first time. It's Argyle's first time driving a limousine, McLean's first time go- being in a limousine. Uh, it was fun. I-, I enjoyed it. I like how in in another universe this movie could have been completely different. In a, in a universe where Hans Gruber doesn't show up and the and the terrorist plot doesn't happen, we could have seen. Something of like a rom-com of, uh, of Bruce Willis and his wife trying to save their failed marriage where he has this awkward limo driver and like has this big <laughs> grand gesture plan but has no idea what the fuck he's doing. He's just this big tough guy New York cop. In a parallel universe, that movie exists somewhere. That's true. And again, like I said, and I say numerous times in the movies I love, it's the little touches that make the difference. And like it's that scene where McLean and Holly are talking for the first time and they get into that argument, which is um, interrupted by the secretary, so Holly has to leave. And as soon as she leaves, you can see 
McLean's like, fuck. Like, that's not what he wanted to do. He didn't want to fight with her. He came here to reconcile, but he's still bitter over her leaving. And so he's obviously angry, and he doesn't have the emotional maturity to deal with it in a proper way because why? He's a guy. And, but I, I love that you can see that he realizes he's like, he's like, I fucked up. Like, that's not what I wanted to come here for. Like, why did, why did I have to be such a dick? Yeah, I, I love not only how in-depth McLean is as a character, but how imperfect he is. Like, there's nothing yes. worse than, in movies they call it a Mary Sue, just a protagonist who's got absolutely nothing wrong with them. They're just the absolute perfect beacon of hope and wonderfulness and happiness. And it's just so boring to watch a character like that. John McClane is not that. He is he's very capable and he's very intelligent and he's very resourceful. But he's also petty. He's kind of an asshole. Mm-hmm. He uh, he's completely immature and it you know, in that movie in a parallel universe I'm talking about, like he he probably comes off like a huge asshole because yeah. he he needs to learn and grow throughout this movie and uh, I, I really like the whole development of his character. It's really well done. Yeah, and it's and one of the things and I remember distinctly, the, the one of the main reasons I love this movie when it came out, um, when I saw it, it was such a breath of fresh air to see your protagonist get hurt and to stay hurt. The damage he takes throughout this movie remains, and he's it's not like it's later on Bruce Willis becomes indestructible in his movies and stuff like that. Um, but it was such a change of pace with uh, the two alpha male movie stars at the time, Schwarzenegger and Stallone. They would get shot, they would get hurt for like half a second, and the next scene, they're completely fine. Where in this movie, every everything that happens to McLean compounds and has ramifications. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite examples, because I completely agree with you that there's nothing mo- more boring than an action star who just is indestructible and feel you feel like he can never get hurt and there are no stakes. One of my favorite examples, and I think a movie that even predates this one, is uh, a movie we've talked about a couple times tonight, Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it, that's one of my favorite examples of tension in action scenes because Indy just gets the fucking pulp beat out of him in every scene in that movie. And it's only by the skin of his teeth that he comes out of every every action uh, every action scene. And I think uh, the action scenes in this movie perhaps were maybe a little inspired by that because John McClane takes a fucking beating. He uh, is outmatched and out muscled in just about every hand to hand scene that he's in. Uh, he's outmanned a lot of the time. He's surrounded and has nothing around him besides his gun and his wit and his determination and it's so much more interesting to see someone persevere in a situation like that where they can do get hurt than in a situation where they just breeze through bad guys like they're you know red shirts in star trek yeah totally i totally agree um i think it's i think it makes him more relatable uh to people same with indiana jones like like you said indiana jones in every conflict in raiders of the lost ark he gets he survives by the skin of his teeth. And I, I think that that makes him endearing to moviegoers. Like, you can actually relate to this guy because he barely survived. He did survive. He obviously is going to survive because he is the main character and stuff like that. Same with McLean. But you actually feel 
the threat. You actually feel the stakes that he's going through. Um, and like I said, there's ramifications with the choices he makes and, and the damage that he uh, endures. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I love this movie so much when it came out. And it's uh, one of the many, many, many reasons that I love this movie now. We're 30 years later. Yeah. Wow. This movie is 30 years old. Yes. <laughs> Feels like yesterday to me. Um, Gruber interrogates Nakatomi executive Joseph Takagi for the code to the building's vault and reveals that he plans to steal $640 million in bearer bonds with the terrorist act merely a distraction. Takagi refuses to cooperate and is killed by Gruber. McLean secretly watches but accidentally gives himself away and escapes. He sets off a fire alarm in an attempt, in an attempt to alert authorities, so Gruber sends Tony to investigate. McLean kills Tony, pocketing his weapon and radio, using it to contact contact the LAPD. As Sergeant Al Powell is sent to investigate, Gruber sends Heinrich and Marco to stop McLean, who kills them both. Powell arrives and is greeted by Eddie, posing as a concierge. Finding nothing unusual, Powell prepares to leave, but McLean drops Marco's corpse onto his patrol car to gain his attention while Alexander shoots at the car from the building with an automatic rifle. Powell summons the LAPD, who lay siege to the building, McLean steals Heinrich's bags containing C4 explosives and detonators. That was a lot. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, we've already kind of discussed uh, Gruber uh, murdering um, Takagi. Fantastic scene. So much fun. So much tension built, both by the performance of uh, Gruber and, oh, damn it, who played Takagi? Uh, James Shigata. Um, they're... Their play off one another um, is really, really good. Like I said, Shigata really comes across as uh, regal. Um, and Gruber, Rickman is just oozing charisma, oozing confidence. Um, just the He's the highlight of the movie for me. In a movie full of highlights and a nearly perfect film, uh, action film, he's just a, a... He stands head and shoulders above everything. I, I can't honestly heap enough praise onto alan rickman and what he does in this movie yeah this scene in particular i think is really important for establishing the character of hans gruber uh because he actually has quite uh quite a foe i guess in takagi takagi is uh, a very capable smart businessman he like i've said he, he kept keeps his composure and really keeps his wits about him in most situations and he does this entire situation but there's one tiny misstep he makes towards the end, and he just says, well, I mean, you're just going to have to kill me. And Gruber says, okay, and blows his fucking head off yep. right there. And that moment is just, it, it shows the pragmatism of Hans Gruber. If he doesn't get what he wants, he's going to punish you for it. And even if he doesn't get what he wants, he's still going to get what he wants, just another way, because he's that smart. He'll find another way to do it. You can either work with me and live, or you can not help me and die. Yep. And it's, it's such a pragmatic simple approach to this character but it really shows a lot about him in the scene so i really like it yeah i agree um so this is where we get to see mclean after this um it's mclean's kind of first moment to shine where he kills tony and again he he it's not that he was so much better than tony they just happened to fall downstairs and tony's neck got broken could have easily been McLean. Obviously, it can't because then the movie would have been over. 
Or maybe Al Powell comes in and saves the day. Who knows? But <laughs> Tony's killed, and and I I like that he's killed this way. He's he's killed in a, in a kind of like an accidental fall. I'm sure whatever he probably would have McLean would have killed him eventually because he's the good guy. But I I do love that that during their fight they both get hurt. Tony's obviously mortally wounded um, with a broken neck. Um, and I love uh, this is like I'm sure it's happened before, but I love that it's the first time I can recall that the hero starts searching the body, like trying to figure out what's going on here. It's a very grim but kind of funny scene. I love the line where he steals his. Is it him where he steals the smokes and says these are very bad for you? Yep. <laughs> that makes me chuckle every time, and it shows the personality of McLean. It is a little bit grim, honestly. That. I guess it just comes with the turf of being a New York cop, but he's just so cool with death right away. And this might also just be 80s action movies in general, but it's always struck me as not odd or out of place, but just it's always just struck me that he's so okay with death. Well, actually, that's uh, funny that you mentioned it because, um, again, doing a little research for this movie, um, McLean um, hung out with some uh, New York City police officers, and the thing that he found um surprising was actually the sense of humor that they all had they had a very dark sense of humor um but when you think about it you really have to to deal with what they have to deal with day in and day out so he said um you know a lot of the quips and a lot of the stuff that he said in the movie were inspired by the humor of the people that he spent time with on the new york uh police department um, he's like you, he's like you'd be surprised at the level of depravity and and humor that they display while on their job. He's like it was the, the thing that surprised me the most. He's like so he he, he uh, Willis feels that everything that McLean says and does in regards to those isn't that out of character because that's what he experienced during his research. Well, that's entirely fair. I I can definitely see where that would come from. I've met a, I've been friends with a couple of cops in my days, and they are. <laughs> they have some fucked up humor <laughs> for sure, which I am definitely a fan of. Yes, same here. Um, <laughs> so uh, Al Powell arrives. I don't. <laughs> uh, Eddie, who uh, plays the concierge, um, one of the things I I love, and still to this day, I swear to God, that's Huey Lewis. It's not wh- whoever he is. He fucking looks like Huey Lewis. Um, I gotta look up a picture of Huey Lewis. Oh, you don't know who Huey Lewis is? Huey I, know, Lewis... I know Huey Lewis in the news, but I don't know what he looks like. <laughs> he look he looks like Eddie. Hold on. Oh yeah. <laughs> You're totally right. Yeah, they they are ex- they're they're twins. That's who they are. Long lost twin brother. Yeah. That's connection. Um That's funny. I love uh it always that was one line I didn't uh I didn't like uh a little too cheesy for me when uh was it Marco's body? Yeah, Marco's body is thrown on Al Powell. He's backing out, he's getting shot up, shot up and then uh McLean's looking out the broken glass window. Welcome to the party, pal. I'm like yeah. bad line. Um oh, one of the few in this movie. Yeah, one of the few. Um uh, so moving on from there, um, James and Alexander. James, that's uh, that's uh, Vigo, the uh, the Carpathian. 
Uh, and Alexander used anti-tank missiles to disable a SWAT armored car uh, before McLean violently kills both of them by pushing C4 attached to an office chair and computer down the elevator shaft, blowing up their floor. It's during this siege that's where um, that's where Uli uh, steals the chocolate bar. I fucking love that. We've already <laughs> mentioned that before. Um, I uh, I also love. I'm I'm not sure why. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, Gruber tells uh, – maybe it's just to send a message of brutality, but I, I think Gruber tells them not to kill them but to, like, hurt them bad because, remember, they get – those guys get shot. Like, their legs and knees get, like, blown to bits, but they're not killed. Yeah. He instructs them to shoot for the legs, right? Yeah. I think so. Which is nuts. Yeah. Mean. Um Here's a, a, another fun scene. Uh, Holly's co-worker, Harry Ellis, attempts to mediate between Hans and McLean for the return of the detonators. McLean refuses, prompting Gruber to execute Ellis. Uh, while, mm, yeah, while checking explosive attached to the roof, Gruber encounters McLean. Gruber passes himself off as an escaped hostage. McLean offers him a gun, and Gruber attempts to shoot McLean, but the gun is empty. Carl, Franco, and Fritz arrive. McLean kills Fritz and Franco, but is forced to flee, abandoning the detonators. So we talked about Ellis getting killed. Uh, the one nice thing, uh, I should say, well, not the nice thing for Ellis because he is killed, but the last thing he has is a can of Coca-Cola. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Of course <laughs> you would like that. I've got a can of Coke around here somewhere, although it's diet. But yeah. Are you watching your weight? Good for you. Oh, shut up. Like I said, uh, Ellis uh, steals the scene. Like, he's such a cocky, arrogant prick. And I love that he's, you know, over the radio. He's talking about Hans, Bubby, what's with the gun? Like, what am I, method? (laughs) Yeah, I, I love Ellis. He just comes off as such a cocky shithead and uh i i really do hate him but yes. he's just the perfect asshole he, his portrayal in this movie is really really quite good um and he's just he comes off as a guy that we all kind of know just the guy who is uh shaking your hand with one hand and holding the knife in the other he just strikes you as the kind of guy who's just a it's like i was, I was talking about anybody wearing a suit in any of these movies is just a fucking prick, and Ellis is a Ellis is a really good example of that. But he's also just a great, really funny character. Yeah, he is. He's a lot of fun. It was also fun watching him die. It was a lot of fun watching him die. Yes, that, that brief moment of realization that he has when he doesn't get an answer from uh, from Bruce Willis on the radio is just a, a really good movie moment. Yes, it definitely is. Um, the scene where Gruber and McLean meet face to face. Um, I mentioned it in the villain episode. Um, this wasn't originally in the movie. Um, it was put in because uh, Gruber uh, showed them that he could do an American accent. Um, and that's how this scene came to be. They did this scene um, because it wasn't originally in the script. A lot of the scene is improvised um, and that added to... Uh, it, it added to the scene, knowing that now you can see that like they're both trying to figure each other out. Um, a lot of people have mentioned um, 
they're unsure as to how McLean figures out um, that Gruber is a uh, a terrorist or one of the terrorists. Um, it actually goes back to his. If you remember when he's talking on the radio with Powell, he's talking about how they're well funded, and he he mentions the cigarettes. And when he offers one to Gruber, Gruber takes one immediately, um, and and lights it up without saying anything. Well, these are European cigarettes. Where if an American grabbed one, they would have said something right away. And that's that's actually a, that's a really interesting point. Yes, and it's and McLean being a cop, that's his job is to notice little things like that. It's like how is, you, is there is there a reaction shot inserted there or anything like that? Like Willis looking at him taking the cigarette or anything like that? I'd have to double check on that one. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, but I always love I always love that scene. And uh, I love that you know he tur- he gives Gruber the gun, then turns his back, and Gruber starts talking in German, and slowly pointing the gun, and then uh, and then the reveal that the gun is not loaded. It's uh, <laughs> it's so much fun. And it's the same same sort of thing with the Takagi scene where he asks Wells for the detonators yep. a couple of times. He doesn't give them up, and he he wants to play a game of chicken, and he he goes, "All right, fuck it, I'll find him another way." And goes to pull the trigger, except this time, Bruce Willis is one step ahead of him. Yeah. Um, but then that's when the others show up. Um, let's see. Da, da, da. Yeah. Okay. They actually don't talk about it. Um, so they. Uh, this is when he escapes. Um, into the computer room and uh, they got to shoot the glass. I love, mm. I love that Carl and Hans are in there and Hans tells him to shoot the glass in German. And Carl yeah. is like, what shoot the glass? Yeah. It's, this is one of the things about this movie that I actually kind of roll my eyes at is just the bad guys are all German terrorists and they speak to each other in English <laughs> Only when they don't know that John McClane is listening. It's just one thing that kind of bothers me about this movie. Like when they're in the elevator and they don't know that Bruce Willis is in the shaft and they're talking about all their dead their dead associates. And that's the conversation they decide to have in English where they're grieving over their comrades and Bruce Willis just is, needs to be listening so he can list off all their names. It's... There are a couple little moments like that where you just have to kind of take it in stride. Like, okay, this is an American movie, American audience. You can sort of brush it off. And honestly, if that's the worst thing about this movie, then, hey, we're we're laughing. Yeah. Um, McLean having to uh, walk over broken glass with bare feet. Um, this is actually one of the scenes, and I actually I only, I only found out about this recently, so I'm actually looking forward to watching this again. Um during a lot of the filming, um, Bruce Willis actually isn't technically barefoot. He's actually wearing uh, prosthetics on his feet to make it look like he's barefoot. So they're mm. actually specially designed shoes so it looks like his he's got bare feet, but they're actually shoes, much like The Hobbit, except not as pronounced. Are they like those little – you remember a couple of years ago when everyone was wearing those toe shoes? Yes. Like those black ones. You remember those? Yes. My co- God, my, co- my coworker wears them. What an absolute travesty of a trend. Yes. Who invented those? No idea. Um, they're actually really good. They are actually good for rock for rock climbing. Um, that, 
that's uh i typically don't find myself in rock climbing environments i typically just see people wearing them around just i don't know why to be weird yeah i guess so i don't know (laughs) um but it's actually in this scene i I, from what i've heard um where if you kind of really take a look you can see that bruce willis's feet are a little bit larger than what they would be normally so i'm Again, I'm looking forward to what it just gives me an excuse to watch this movie for the 31st time. <laughs> um, Very true. But I, I always this scene always this scene and then McLean's follow up scene to this because I can't remember. I think after this it transitions down to the FBI taking over um, down below. Um, but the thought of having to walk over broken glass in bare feet, like right now my feet are twitching thinking about yeah, it. now i'm accidentally making little knuckles with my feet yes um uh, but i again i love that this has repercussions and the scene in the bathroom where he's talking with powell and he's basically come to grips or come to the realization that he's not going to survive it's pretty touching it's actually a really it's a really good character driven deep scene in an action film yeah that's one of the many good things about this movie is even though him and Powell haven't met and they've only recently uh, even learned each other's names, he's been Roy for a good portion of this movie up until this point. Uh, this is just a really touching moment and a really good character moment. And Bruce Willis is trying to, you know, take the take him for a joke and like make fun of him a little bit. But then Powell gets really serious and he tells him he's got this his ghost in his in his past that he's trying to reconcile for. Yeah, because he, he shot a kid. He's just trying to make fun of him for being a desk jockey, and he really, really opens up, and it's a really touching scene between the two of them. And I love the bond they share in this movie, and it's kind of upsetting, honestly, that in Die Hard 2, uh, he only has one scene. Uh, yeah. Does, does uh, Sergeant Al Powell. Yeah, um, it's the facts scene. Yeah, it's a really a wasted scene, and again, we don't have to get into, into Die Hard 2, but yeah, it's a shame that this Bond was uh, was wasted on just one movie, because I feel like there's a lot there that could be explored. 100%. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, this, the FBI agents take command of the siege, ordering the building's power shut off. This, as Gruber anticipated, disables the vault's final lock. And this is one of my favorite lines from the movie. It's not that huge of a line. It's just Gruber's delivery. And again, I mentioned it. It's, you wanted a miracle? I give you the FBI. I love (laughs) that delivery. I mean, if we want to just sit here and list Gruber lines all day, we totally could do it. Like I think we totally glazed over the, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> it's so good. I laugh every time he says it because it's so sinister and awesome. Yes. That's oh. my favorite uh, Hans Gruber line, personally. I mean, it's iconic, so how could it not be? Um, Gruber uh, demands a helicopter on the rooftop for transport, but the FBI prepared to double-cross him by sending helicopter gunships. <clears throat> McLean discovers that Gruber intends to detonate the explosives on the roof, faking the deaths of his team so they can escape with the bear bonds. While making final preparations, Gruber sees a news report by intrusive reporter Richard Thornburg that features McLean's children and deduces from a desk photo that McLean is Holly's husband. Uh, the criminals order the hostages to the roof, but Gruber takes Holly with him to use against McLean, who, in the meantime, defeats Carl in a fight before heading up to the roof, 
killing Uli in the process. I was sad to see him die like that. Yeah. Uh, he sends the hostages downstairs just as the FBI appear and starts shooting at McLean, believing him to be a terrorist. Gruber then detonates the explosives, destroying the roof and the FBI helicopter. McLean barely manages to survive. Um, I really enjoyed the fight between McLean and Carl. Um, I love... I love how McLean got the upper hand for a bit and he just he's talking to him as he's beating him up. Um he taunts him by saying his his brother squealed like a little bitch. Yeah. Uh and then yeah and uh it's it's again it's it's a, a much more realistic fight than what you see in a lot of action movies. Yeah, um, again, you and I both just, or I guess we both know Die Hard 1 and 2, and the contrast between the two is pretty crazy when you look at the fight scenes in particular, because I was, I was watching Die Hard 2 today, actually, and it's just so, the fight scenes are so choreographed. Yes. Like, obviously, every fight scene is choreographed, but it just feels like a dance rather than a real fight. It just feels like, okay, you do this move, then I'll do this move. And it, it just feels very planned out and methodical and doesn't feel very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, these fight scenes, especially this last one, uh, it's John and uh, what's the bad guy's Carl. name? This, Carl. This this fight scene is, there's nothing flashy about it. There's nothing stylized about it. It's just fucking raw. It's two guys trying to beat the shit out of each It's two guys trying to kill each other. Yes. And it's basically how any two guys without formal training and that sort of thing would try to kill each other. And it's really intense. It's a really good scene. Yeah, I like it. Um, I love... I always love that uh, even when McLean's trying to help, he gets screwed over. He's trying to get all the hostages off the roof. Uh, after he's killed uh, Carl, he's up there and he's firing the gun to to get all the hostages off the roof. So the FBI thinks that he's one of the terrorists and they start shooting at him. Um, I always, I always love that scene that his idea on how to get out of this problem is to jump off the side of the building by wrapping a fire hose around his waist and getting in through a window. I was just thinking, I'm like, well, you were up on the roof earlier when you're fighting, uh, Carl before, I'm like, I'm sure you could find another entrance <laughs> back into the building. I don't think jumping off was your was your final thing, but I guess he, you know, he does know that it, the the roof's gonna blow up at any moment, so I guess he had to get off pretty quickly. Yeah, this is. Uh, there, we've talked about how realistic this movie is, especially in the fight scenes. It's a Hollywood action movie. There's a little, a little tiny bit of you know. Uh, I can't even think of the term. It, it, there's a suspension a little bit of disbelief. Of, thank you. Yeah, a little bit of suspension of disbelief in this scene of him. It Not that he's planned this all out, but just that it all works out, sort of. This is one little moment where you do sort of feel like John McClane's a little bit invincible, where he jumps off the roof, yep. slams into the window, uh, shoots the glass, and then manages to get detached from the fire hose just in time before he gets out. There's a little bit of a feeling for me of like, okay, this guy can't die. It, it, it didn't really feel – the tension suffered because of it. Let's put it that way. Just because it felt like he was a little bit invincible in the scene. Maybe that's just me. No, I could agree with that. Totally agree with that. 
um, pretty much like everything leading up to this moment, um, for, for everything leading up to, to this moment from an action movie standpoint is, was in my opinion, probably realistic. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. The one that comes to mind, and actually it was another tidbit I wanted to share, um, when he's uh, originally up on the roof fighting with Carl and stuff and he escapes down the uh, down the air duct shaft and he falls, <sighs> that's actually a mistake. The stuntman wasn't supposed to miss. Um, he was actually supposed to make it. So um, it's not that he fell to his death or anything like that. I think it, was, it wasn't that far of a drop. Obviously, it's all camera angles and, and mirrors yeah. and stuff. But that's why um, they they just cut in the take of where uh, McClane catches himself. So they use the mistake of, of the stuntman's mistake to add tension to the scene. Yeah, I actually did want to touch on that part earlier. I did forget about that. That's the other moment. The only other moment that stood out to me as like a big suspension of disbelief moment where I'm like, okay, this guy just fell how far in an elevator shaft and just held on by the tits of his fingers onto this one little ledge. But I mean, there's reasoning behind it. And again, it's, it's an eighties action movie. If there's only two moments where I didn't believe the action really, then that's a success. That's, that is batting well over 500. Yep. Um, Theo retrieves their getaway vehicle, but is incapacitated by Argyle. Apparently, um, while they were doing this scene, uh, director McTiernan didn't—he he didn't like the stunt punching that was going on. So, our, uh, the actors for Argyle um, talked it over, and Argyle punched him for real. Oh shit! And that's the take they used. He didn't knock him. He didn't knock him out for real, but they they went for a real punch, uh, and that's why it actually kind of looks pretty good. Um, it, it always made me laugh. Uh, it always made me laugh. Um, a weary McLean finds Holly with Gruber and his remaining men, Eddie and Kristoff. After knocking Kristoff unconscious, he confronts Gruber and is ordered to surrender his machine gun. McLean does this to spare Holly but distracts Gruber and Eddie, allowing him to grab a concealed pistol with only two bullets taped to his back. McLean shoots Gruber and kills Eddie with a single shot to the forehead. Gruber crashes through a window, but grabs onto Holly's wrist. Gruber raises a pistol and attempts to shoot them, but McLean removes Holly's wristwatch, and Gruber falls to his death. So, uh, this is just a very... dense little section here i really like it it shows off mclean's ingenuity cuts it a little bit close yep. with the, uh with the firing of the pistol definitely could have used a little bit of hurry up from him uh, when his when his life and his wife's life are both at stake but it's a great conclusion uh it's definitely tension filled um it's actually just a really well constructed scene in that i really like when they show you the gun, when they show you Bruce Willis's extra gun. Because, yeah. I mean, if they show it to you too late, it just feels a little bit cheap, like, oh, we got there just in time. And if they show you the gun too early, then it just cuts out the tension of the entire scene. You know how it's going to end. Yeah. They they choose the perfect time to pan the camera around to his back and show you, ah, he's got it all figured out. And it's, I, I've always really admired that about the, the timing and the editing of the scene is really good. Hence the best film editing Oscar nomination. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. I agree. This this seems a lot of fun. It is really well shot. 
Um, I love, I think if I'm not mistaken, Gruber starts spouting off some type of quote from a book or something like that. And McLean just starts laughing and, Mc, and Gruber's unsure what to do. He's like, this man's about to die. Why is he laughing? And so he starts to laugh a little bit. Uh, and that gives McLean the moment he's looking for to, uh, to reach for that gun he has taped to his back. Um, the scene where Gruber falls to his death, again, I mentioned it in the villain episode. Um, he's actually, uh, he is actually suspended. I think it's about 13 feet high. Um, and the stunt coordinator uh, was supposed to release Gruber on the count of three, but to get a great reaction shot of, of Hans, unsure, uh, an actual shocked expression, um, he released him on two instead of on the count of three. So that, stunned reaction you see on Rickman as he's falling to his death as Hans Gruber is actually a, a real stunned moment. Um, it's little, again, little touches. Um, so you, you can't, you can't fake. It's hard to fake acting, being shocked that you're about to die. But when you're expecting something to happen on the count of three, it happens on two, you get a real reaction and it pays off because I, I love that look on his face. Like he's not, yeah. a, it's a it's a really good death scene, and uh, I mean a tribute to the late great Alan Rickman. Um, I also want to touch on uh, a great setup payoff moment. It's it's a really tiny tiny thing, but it's again the attention to detail in this movie is really really good. There's a small little interaction at the beginning of this movie where uh, Ellis is just being a cocky douche as he does, and he uh, he points to again I keep forgetting the name for character. Holly. Uh, Holly. Yeah, he points to Holly and just says, hey, show, show him the watch. And she like shows it off, and he goes, yeah, it's a Rolex. And yeah. he's like, just totally pimping it out, and he thinks it's so cool that she has a Rolex. And that it, just that one little tiny interaction, which just seems like a little character moment to develop Ellis, yeah. uh, ends up being called back because it's Holly's wristwatch that he's just barely holding on to, that uh, Hans is just barely holding on to, and they manage to undo. Again, small little detail makes the movie just so much better when you add them all together. It, I just, the first time I noticed that I didn't notice it the first couple of times, obviously, but when I did, I was like, fuck, that is such an unnecessary thing for you to put in your movie. That just makes it so much better. Yes. I really respect that. Oh, I love it. Uh, also the scenes cut gives, is given a little chuckle as, uh, as Gruber's falling, uh, deputy police chief Dwayne T Robinson says, I hope that's not one of the hostages. <laughs> uh, yeah it's a good one um, so outside McLean and Holly meet Powell uh, Carl emerges and attempts to shoot McLean but is shot dead by Sergeant Al Powell with his police revolver Argyle crashes through the parking garage door in the limo which he could have done at any time but whatever uh, Thornburg arrives and attempts to interview McLean but Holly punches him before she and McLean leave the area with Argyle all to the sound of one of my favorite Christmas songs. And that's Die Hard. Uh, I didn't like that Carl came back. I won't lie. I've always hated that. Um, I get it that it allows Al to have that moment um, to shoot his gun, which is definitely needed and a nice reward um, for everything that Al has done throughout the movie and uh, completes his arc. Um, but I, I did, I, I hated that, that, uh, that Carl came back. Yeah. Maybe if they had a little less 
finality in the death scene because the death scene for Carl feels really conclusive. Like, okay, that's the end of it. And there's very little room for like, oh, maybe he got away through, you know, this way. It, It just seems like a very certain death sort of scenario. Maybe if they had hinted a little bit at him, at him having survived, that'd be a really good setup payoff moment. But yeah, the Carl having come back is a little bit odd. I think there's actually um, um, at the end of uh, I've never noticed it, and again, mm-hmm. it was just something I found out in my research for the movie. Um, when Carl is killed at the end of the, his fight, uh, I think there is a shot um, with McLean where over his shoulder you can see Carl is not dead. Apparently, I guess his eyes are open, or he, or he, or he does something. So again, it's going to be one of the things I'm going to look for the next time I watch this movie. Yeah, because nobody dies with their eyes open in Hollywood movies. Yeah, um, I love that it's Holly that punches out Thornburg. Um, it's a great moment uh, for her, uh, which plays over into Die Hard Part Two. Um, but I, I, it's uh, it's a nice it's a nice ending to an absolute thrill ride of an adventure movie. Yeah, it really is the perfect ending. I personally don't mind uh, Sergeant Powell uh, getting the opportunity to use his weapon again, kind of bring his plot full circle. Um, the the Carl coming back thing is you know debatable as to how uh, realistic or, or necessary that is. Um, honestly, if there is one storyline, I don't really. Uh, appreciate in this maybe appreciate is the wrong word i just i I definitely could do without it it is uh the dick thornburg uh story oh yeah it's completely unnecessary it's completely unnecessary and it just strikes me as just an opportunity to have another punching bag in this movie um i don't know It, it struck me as kind of unnecessary i mean we haven't even really mentioned him up to this point he's just so inconsequential in this movie um it, when you think about it, the only real uh, reason that he has anything to do in this movie is that he reports uh, or, or he puts um, uh, their kids, he puts uh, John and Holly's kids on TV so that Hans will see it and then uh, and then figure out that Holly is actually John's wife. Yeah, but they, they didn't need... the only effect he has on the story, really. Yeah, it is. And they don't even need it because there is that picture of Holly and John yeah. and the kids that she she turns down all it would have taken. You didn't have to have Thornburg. You could have just had Hans being inquisitive in her office and flip the picture up and see, because at that point he's already, he'd already seen John McClane. Yeah. So yeah, Thornburg's pretty much, he definitely, definitely could have been cut. He's entertaining because he plays a fucking asshole really fucking well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's not, he's, he's not necessary. I do like it's such a small little part. I do like his delivery of the line "Eat it, Harvey." Yeah, <laughs> Harvey. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty good delivery on that line. Um, so that pretty much has uh, has Die Hard all wrapped up. Man, it's a really good thing that we decided not to do Die Hard two as well in this episode because we would have been running long. I know. <laughs> Uh, final thoughts on Die Hard, Sam. Die Hard is a classic action movie for a reason. Um, as is often the case with these sorts of movies, 
it's gone down in history as one of the best movies of its era while being underappreciated at the time. Um, it is incredibly well constructed. It's easily the best of this series and uh, you know, arguably the best action movie of all time. It is a movie I've seen many times. I have no plans to stop watching. Whether that is in the summer or whether that is around the holidays does not matter to me. I will sit down and watch this movie with you whenever you want, whoever you are. It is <laughs> awesome. That is Die Hard. Manny, your thoughts. Yeah, this is easily one of my all-time favorite movies. I love this movie. Like I said, and I, I'm not even exaggerating. I've easily seen this movie 25 to 30 times without a shadow of a doubt. Um, that's easy. And that's also because, I'll, you know, probably it's probably even more because if you look at it my age – the movie is 30 years old, so that's only watching it once a year, and I can guarantee you I've done, I've watched it more than once this year alone. So, um, it's so much fun. It's such a great movie. It really is the best action movie out there. We did count down that top 10. Uh, it was on Ranker.com. Um, I'd be hard pressed to put any of the other movies on that list above Die Hard. It's just such a great action movie it's shot so well um and has in my opinion the best movie villain of all time at the center of it um that's basically die hard if you haven't seen it i don't know why you're still listening to this episode but you should have seen it already came out 30 fucking years ago yeah sam what's your score on die hard Again, I like to do these rankings or these ratings in the moment after we get a feel for flushing it, flushing the movie out between the two of us. Um, again, I've been going between two ratings. I'm sure you know what they are. And uh, the one big one is reserved for movies that really have a near and dear place to your heart, movies that sort of uh, transcend what it means to be a good movie or just something that you find really enjoyable on a personal level, and that ranking is the 5 out of 5, and that is what Die Hard is for me. Nice! I got that wrong. I predicted a five, a 4 for you. Mm. This is I, a, I, I already know what your rating is. Yeah, it's, it's a is. 5. It's a 5. It's a 5. It's a 5 and a half. <gasps> oh. yes. I'm, more, I'm, I'm more offended that you did a half rating than you did more than 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Die Hard's an an easy five for me. It's it's like I said, it's one of my all time favorite movies. Um, so that wraps up our uh, our Christmas episode. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I look, I look forward to next. I don't know. I have no idea what we're gonna do next year. Now that we've gotten rid of the best one out of the way. Yeah, we're gonna have to do something really. <laughs> there aren't many other good Christmas movies. Here's a question: If yes. we haven't done Die Hard or like Die Hard Two or something like that, mm -hmm. what? is the movie that we would have done what's the best christmas movie out there assuming that die hard isn't one well that you know if we answer that we're definitely not doing a top five christmas movies for next year right that's very true that's very true um all right well for it, there's so uh, there's so many but for me if we're not counting die hard as a christmas movie my are we asking my favorite or the best? No, you can do either. Okay, my favorite is Scrooged, hands down. Really? 100%, okay. yeah. I ball like a bitch at the end, every time. Mm -hmm. Every time. The best, 
I would have a hard time picking between either the original Miracle on 34th Street or It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Um, honestly, It's a Wonderful Life would have been a good one to do. Because there's some interesting stuff about that and why it is considered one of the better Christmas movies out there. And I agree with you. It's a fantastic movie. But I, it's actually uh, – it did so poorly in the box office. I don't know if you know this. Mm. It did so poorly in the box office that I think it's public domain now. The – the company, the, the production company that made it didn't even bother retaining its rights. Uh, they didn't even bother retaining its copyright. They're like, fuck it. They just let it expire. So that's why it was on TV so often. So it really begs the question, is it popular because it was in public domain so stations could play it for free? And it just got, it was watched so frequently that it got popular? Or did it just reach a broader audience and gain the appreciation that it could uh, because it was no longer in uh because it was now in public domain. Am I making sense right now? Yeah, no, I know what you're talking okay. about. Um, it's actually funny because I actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, they are, um, they're re-releasing, I, I think Kamloops is um, re-releasing It's a Wonderful Life um, for a, a small, like I think it's only playing like one or two days no, I can't see it here. Damn it. I swear there was an ad saying that there was going to be two days that they were going to be playing It's a Wonderful Life at the theater. Um, I, I think that's – I think the reason that uh, movie theaters do that, why it is common practice, is because the copyright's expired. It's because they don't have to pay anything to do that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fine. But I, I would love to go see it in the theater again. Yeah. Not, not again. Not again. I shouldn't say again. I would love to go see it in the theater I haven't seen I, it. I need, to I need to find an excuse to watch The Wonderful Life now. Thanks a lot, Manny. Yeah. I think For the record, I think uh, arguably It's a Wonderful Life would be the best Christmas movie ever, assuming, again, that Die Hard isn't one, which I've argued that it is. Um, but assuming that it isn't, I would say It's a Wonderful Life, probably the best Christmas movie ever. My personal favorite is probably Elf. I love me some Elf. Elf is one of the few Will Ferrell movies that I like. I just saw the pained expression on your face saying that, and it makes me very happy. <laughs> yes. Elf, Elf is a, a highly, highly enjoyable film, um, which, again, is really shocking to me to have to admit because of my I, – I, I can't say hatred – my dislike of most Will Ferrell movies. Yeah. Kind of funny, though, that uh, your two favorite Christmas movies uh, came out in the same year. Didn't they? What? Scrooge and Die Hard? Oh, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was, I was like, not it's a wonderful life. <clears throat> I was like, that. I'm like, what? <laughs> My conception of time isn't that fucked up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Came out the same year. Yeah. Yeah. Great year for Christmas movies. Great year. Great year for film. Um, so that wraps up, uh, again, that completely wraps up our Christmas episode. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes uh, and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. If you would leave us a five-star review and a little, uh, a little review as well, uh, it would really ha- help. It would really help raise our profile so we can uh, get up to 18.3 listeners per episode. Um, don't forget us to follow us in on social media on both Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. Send us your questions for our mailbag episode and send in your ideas for our fan request episode that we'll be doing, I believe, I think we have a plan for early January. Yes, I 
I believe we had that planned out like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you have a little bit more time to uh, send in uh, your requests for the movie that Sam and I will watch and review. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Also, um, we're going to be taking a couple weeks off uh, for the holidays. Um, so on behalf of myself, uh, to the 18.2 listeners out there, I would love to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. Please be safe and have a lot of fun. Take all this time to watch some really great movies. Um, like we've said a million times before and we'll continue to do before, we love hearing from you guys. Um, one of my friends, I don't know if she's a listener or not, but my friend Sarah actually gave me her top 10 uh, favorite movies of all time list recently. Um, a very eclectic mix of movies. Yeah. Many, many read it to me before we went on air today. It is a very <laughs> interesting top 10. Yes. I would very much like to talk movies with this person. As would I. I think I'm going to reach out to her and see if she wants to come on the show because that was just a, a wild a wild list uh, for a top 10. <clears throat> if any of you others out there would like to give us your top 10 of all time, I would love to know it because those kind of things um, uh, I love to know. Uh, for those of you out there interested in Sam and I's top 10, um, we actually have plans to reveal that, um, but it's going to be at uh, a, a much later date because we have actually a pretty big plan um, for that episode, um, but it's going to take a lot of work for Sam and I to uh, to fully do that. But we we promise you that that list will be revealed. Um, but it will be a little while. Yeah, I uh, I'm very anxious to get my uh, top ten together. It's been a while since I've actually compiled one. I know you and I have talked about it privately uh, about how we should be doing this, and we finally are. And on the note of people submitting their own top tens. More than happy to be reading those on all the social media that Manny uh, listed earlier. Honestly, even if you just want to shoot shit with movies about us, if you want to message us on those social media platforms, we're more than happy to have a conversation about any old thing if you're uh, you're talking movies. We are movie nerds. It is our entire life. We we have no life outside of this podcast. So if you want to shoot the shit about movies, send us a message. We're more than happy to answer. Yes, please. Um, so, uh, that being said for the Samuel Emmanuel movie podcast, again, we, Sam and I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Adios. Oh, what? Sam, I forgot you go ahead, Sam. (laughs) You know what? You're fine. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Happy new year, everyone. I'm Sam Reimer. Apparently I am inconsequential in this. (laughs) What a great way to sign off the final episode. It really is. This might be our last episode ever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> irreparable riff just created right there yes yeah you everyone just witnessed the beatles breaking up oh don't worry nobody is listening at this point oh that's right 18.2 just witnessed the beatles breaking up <clears throat> have a merry christmas everyone <laughs>